This is Joseph Gervaisi. I'm here with Greg Pizzoli. We're conducting this interview on May 30th, 2017. Uh, we're doing it in Greg's lovely studio in South Philadelphia, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hi, Greg. Hi. Hi. Thanks, for, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for coming out to yeah. your, your own studio. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> uh, well, tell me, I guess, as we usually begin, um, did you grow up in or around Philadelphia? Um, I grew up kind of all over the country. I was born in York, Pennsylvania, which is like two hours west of here. Um, and I went to college in Lancaster County, which is like an hour and a half west of here. Mm-hmm. Um, but What year were you born? 1983. Okay. And um, so I was born in York. Uh, my parents split up when I was super young. I think, I'm not exactly sure how old, but I think like nine months old. Um, and so I was raised by a single mom who we moved, we bounced around from state to state, house to house. Um, and then when I was 13, I moved in. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky at the time, and I moved in with my dad. Um, so from eighth grade through basically college, I lived with my dad in York. Um, and then uh, I graduated with a English degree, and I didn't have many job prospects, <laughs> and uh, I joined AmeriCorps. I, f- I feel very strongly about volunteering, and um, that was sort of my first real taste of um, like sort of life-changing volunteering. And so uh, immediately after undergrad, I moved to Rhode Island, where I was an AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer. VISTA is an acronym, Volunteers in Service to America. I did one year in Rhode Island, and then the second year, I decided to do two years of volunteering, and the second year brought me to Temple University. I worked at a nonprofit there, so that brought me to Philly. I lived in the Northeast, eventually made my way to South Philly, and now I live um, in Bella Vista, which is like on the borderline between South Philly and Center City. Well, having moved around so much, was there something in particular about Philadelphia that, that drew you to stay here when you didn't have to be here any longer? Um, yeah, I mean, I all my friends were here. I mean, like, I, I went to school in Lancaster, so all the kids who were into stuff that I interpreted as being cool, like, ended up moving to either New York or Philly, and... Um, Philly was just the place where, like, all my buddies had a house and I could crash there until I found my own place. Um, and so, you know, I had a strong social structure here pretty quickly. And then um, after a year, like, in that year that I was volunteering at the nonprofit at Temple, I applied for grad schools in Philly and I was accepted to University of the Arts. And so 2007 to 2009... After two years of doing AmeriCorps, I did two years of graduate school. So then you were doing art rather than you had gotten the English major degree, but you moved into art. Yeah, I had had a I had a, um, an art minor in undergrad, uh, and had taken my my last semester of undergrad. I had taken a silkscreen class because I was playing in a band and wanted to make posters for our shows. What was this band? Uh, oh man, <laughs> uh, we we were kind of like a, uh, an improvisational noise band. We were, we were not very good. Um, mm-hmm. We were based out of Baltimore. We play, I think like the biggest venue we ever played was the auto bar. We played the talking head in Baltimore a few times. Um, we played with bands like nautical almanac and um, you know, crazy obscure noise bands. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it was a lot of fun. It was just like a, a ton of fun, and I wanted to make posters and stuff. So I took that silkscreen class, continued to silkscreen the entire time I was in Rhode Island, and sort of met some people there, taught me how to do it better than I had learned in school. And um, so when I got into grad school, it was a book arts and printmaking. So mainly focused on all like the different printmaking processes, mm -hmm. but learning how to, the end result is making books. And that's where I like got a, I had a mentor there in school who sort of turned me on to children's books. And I, for my thesis for grad school, I made children's books that I like silk screened um, and sewed together. And I wrote and illustrated them, the, the whole thing. Prior to that, I mean, as a kid, did you read a lot of those, you know, those type of books, like children's books, and did they have an influence that you, you felt, you know, later in life? Um, I had a few books that I felt, but like moving around a lot, you, it's like hard to hang on to things from your childhood. I have a few like original artifacts from my childhood, like a, a Stay Puft Marshmallow Man figurine, uh, action figure that uh, is on my shelf today and it's like super meaningful because it was that same one yeah um but you know you sort of outgrow books from time to time you don't think like to hold on to them because they'll be meaningful later so um we were also uh i would hesitate to say that we were poor because we had a lot of advantages but i we were broke you know and so we didn't have a ton of books in the house um, but I did go to the library a lot and there were the books that I remember getting from the library were the Ed Emberley how to draw books I don't know if you know those but they're he like shows breaks down the entire world and shows you how to draw it using simple shapes like you know squares and triangles and straight lines and circles and then you can draw a boat and mm -hmm. it shows you step by step like how to do that and I was obsessed with those books and sort of got them out over and over again um, and so I think those were the ones that had a big impact, but I was also like super into video games when I was a kid and still am. Um, and the, those are the things that I held on to that I still have from my childhood. Like I still have the copy of Super Mario Brothers 2 that I played with my dad. Um, Does it work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got the whole, I've got like a museum in my house basically. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there are artifacts from my childhood, but not too many books. Um, obviously books were super important to me. I just didn't get to keep that many of them. Yeah. Well, moving into your teenage years, did you transition then into adult books that had uh, a lasting impact on you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was definitely like the weirdo kid in my high school who like would turn in his uh, English essays that were handwritten on a typewriter because he was, I was obsessed with like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and uh, eventually like Charles Bukowski and you know like the natural progression of young white male <laughs> angst that, yeah, yeah. That, that eventually leads to the dead Kennedys and beyond <laughs> um, and I uh, yeah so like Kerouac I mean I was really big I, I actually never liked On the Road I don't know if that's cliche to say because that's like the popular one but I really connected um, with the books The Dharma Bums and The Big, uh, big Sur those were like my favorite books in high school and I started to turn in essays that were that free-flowing kind of stream of consciousness stuff mm -hmm. that luckily I had a teacher who saw what was happening and encouraged it and didn't um, didn't you know completely try to squash the creative spark which I think a lot of uh, teachers might have done just because it would have been easier but Mrs. Anderson my English teacher saw something in it and you know encouraged me so you had a strong fascination with the beats, the beat writers. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Ginsburg in particular, I always felt like a strong connection to, and I, I mean, I just never read anything like that. I hadn't read anything with those like overt sexual overtones before. And, um, Kerouac just, you know, he had a lot of flaws. They all did, but he just seemed like such a cool guy too. And, you know, the idea when you're growing up in a like somewhat suburban town, the idea of jumping in a car and living in the woods and meeting girls and that, you know, it's just, it's a fantasy kind of thing. Did you ever put any of that into any sort of reality, like attempt to recreate some of their traveling or some of their experiences like that? No, dude, I'm like way, way too much of a coward. Um, I mean, I definitely have like good friends who have hopped trains and, and done all that kind of stuff. But yeah, uh, I know a guy who hopped a train who fell off the train and his foot got caught in part of the train and cut off all of his toes in the top part of oh his foot. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's yeah. The, like the, the romantic. <laughs> no romance the, there. Rom- romance and reality sort yeah. of butt, butt heads there. No, I mean, I was... Definitely always uh, too much of a scaredy cat for the, for that kind of thing, but um, I think it did influence you know the art that I was into and that I was attracted to and sort of led down different. You know, you start there and it like takes you to different places. Um, in college, I became super interested in the writing of Irvin Welsh. He wrote Train Spotting mm-hmm. and um, some of it. You know, he's like anybody, like any band. Like there are some albums I just I. Uh, pretend don't exist by certain bands and yeah. uh, he has books that I don't particularly like but Train Spotting in particular was like uh, a life changer for me too. They Did you see the film after you read the book or, or after? Yeah, yeah after. I actually read the book during in college during a, a contemporary Scottish literature class that I took and the teacher was just I think really into Irvin Welsh so he created this course and it, it was awesome. It was great. So Welsh, was was he the centerpiece of the course? Yeah, we read maybe like three of his books. And then we read, uh, I think the author's name is Alan Warner. He wrote this crime trilogy, the first of which was called Morven Collar, I think. Oh, that was um, made into a movie too. Yeah, I think it was called Ratcatcher, maybe. Yeah, uh, um, no, Morven Collar is, is, there is the movie with that title. There's oh, okay. A, but the, the director, Lynn Ramsey, did, uh, I believe, Ratcatcher was the earlier oh, okay. movie that she okay. did. Oh, okay, yeah. The one about the Scottish barbe- uh, garbage strike, the... Like where they didn't pick up garbage for like a year or something. Uh, I don't think that's... Maybe I'm thinking of something else. I think else. that's Ratcatcher. Yeah, okay. Um, but in any case, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of was always attracted to that stuff. You know, people talking about um, people on the fringes. You know, I mean, that was the kind of music that I was into. That was the kind of art that I was into. And I think part of it was probably because I was just like a normal suburban kid. And I had like had an... Um, been exposed to a lot of that stuff and if i had been i probably would have been terrified (laughs) yeah yeah uh, but i could experience it through books and movies and you know the the safe way that a lot of people yeah i think it worked the same way for me is that i felt like i got to travel to all these different places and live inside of all these different heads which uh when i look back on the past sometimes I, i sometimes almost have to remind myself that some of these experiences that are so vivid to me weren't experiences that i lived but they're experiences that i read but i almost think like oh i went through war or I've been to this state or I've traveled in this way and then I realized no, of course not I haven't done that at all but the experience uh, of, of reading it was so strong that it left this sort of indelible mark on my you know my brain and my memories yeah I mean I I think in particular train spotting was that for me I think because it's written in that in that style where this was your heroin period <laughs> <laughs> yeah right right well you know where he, he he wrote it in the way that you have to read it in the character's voice you know you have to, it's kind of like a, a James Joyce uh 
uh, convention. And uh, so you sort of become that character. I mean, I was, God, doing like poetry readings when I was, you know, 17 or 18 in York County, Pennsylvania. You yeah. can sort of imagine what that's going to be. Yeah, yes. it's going to be a little precious, probably, <laughs> a little awkward. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad. Did, did you use an accent, like a, a just a little wee, wee accent that you had? Yeah, on? you know, I, I, think, I think I did. I mean, embarrassingly enough. I mean, thank God, like, people didn't have iPhones at that uh, time. Yeah. But, uh, um, I mean, you have to read Trainspotting with an accent because that's how he wrote it. So, you know, I mean, there were, I remember a poetry where I just read passages of Trainspotting where I was mm -hmm. just like, you know, the choose life passage, um, that, you know, became famous as like, it was like the trailer probably for the yeah, movie. Yeah, for the movie, yeah. Um, Lust for Life was playing. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> that became, you know, just super important to me because I was, it was sort of like living in the suburbs that being what I was exposed to, like, I knew that the life that I'd have previously living with my, like, living in, uh, sort of rundown apartment buildings and, uh, moving every year, more than once a year, uh, wasn't the life that I wanted. And then when I moved in with my dad, it was sort of this, you know, beatific suburban beauty all, all around. Um, and then you sort of, you're there for a little while and you realize nothing ever happens here like nothing's ever going to change and i'm not going to meet anyone because people drive into their driveways go into their garage go inside turn That's on the it. tv go to sleep go yeah. back to work and repeat um so it was like starting the cracks seeing uh that there were other things out there was always really attractive to me and i have since like in my life now make it a, an important point to travel and to meet people as as much as i can but like i didn't that just wasn't a priority for either of my parents either because it's just not their interest or it wasn't within their means. Um, so like I didn't go, I didn't leave the country until I was like 22 for the first time. Um, and that was, you know, a, a similar eye-opening experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think everybody has that experience. The first time you go to Amsterdam, like, this is crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole other world. It's yeah. Quite unlike that, that world that you were growing up in. Yeah, yeah. But one one of the things that, that people often uh, some people often use when they're trying to pull books out of libraries is the thought that certain books are going to um, convince or inspire young people to engage in really bad behavior, like say train spotting. If there was an attempt to pull that out, it would be if a kid reads this, it glamorizes heroin, and they're going to say like, "Hey, you know, this character was cool. I want to do heroin." But clearly, you know, you're reading this book, you don't want to use heroin. I would imagine, you know, from reading this, and then other books that engage, you know, people were engaging in all sorts of crazy behavior you're not necessarily going to want to mimic their behavior, but there are some who are going to think that the book needs to go because the impressionable mind is going to want to replicate that right. behavior. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I just disagree with the, with the idea that, uh, because I'm reading something in a book that it's going to affect me so much that I'll then become a heroin addict. I mean, I know you're not uh, presupposing that that's my opinion, but like, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, I just think that it's a very misguided uh, way of looking at the world that comes from wanting to protect children and at its core means well, but uh, I mean, y you have to give credit to the reader that they're able to separate themselves from this piece of artwork that they're, ex this piece of art that they're experiencing. And, you know, the guys in Trainspotting are not role models. I mean, I think there's a scene in the book, I know, that where they shoot dogs at the park. Like, there's, mm -hmm. 
it's uh i'm a dog owner <laughs> i'm not uh wasn't inspired by them but it was a window into a world that probably more than anything like could be said you know that there's that book would cement that i would never try heroin because i would never want to open that door um to be like those guys um but it didn't mean that i didn't think that they were like funny and engaging and interesting and human uh all flaws and faults included yeah and i guess the book has to show i guess in the same way as the film that there was something pleasurable that they drew out of it because otherwise you the reader or the viewer would say well why do they even do this right and i guess by showing some sort of pleasure that in effect says well there is some something you know there is some pleasure to get out of this and there is maybe a certain glamour for a while in engaging in this uh, activity sure um there is. I, I just think that you have to give enough credit to the, to the audience. And, you know, to have that conversation, I think, is much more important. Because people are going to find, I mean, particularly now, like maybe 50 years ago, you could pull a book out of a library and mature that, like, the kids in that school or the, in that immediate area wouldn't find that book. But, I mean, come on. Yeah, if yeah, they want it, they'll, yeah. f- they'll find a video of 15 people reading it to them on YouTube. Like, <laughs> yeah. they, you know, it's out there. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, having... I've never... Uh, responded well to the idea that people are trying to protect me from something or to hide something that I um, art that I wouldn't be able to handle or, yeah. or something like that. Well, you mentioned the word conversation, and I think that maybe that's an important part that's often missing from these situations is that rather than pulling this thing out, having a conversation with your young person who's who wants to read this thing is probably the most beneficial thing. Of you, know, what what do you get out of this experience? How do you feel about this? And then talk about the subject, it seems to be a more rational response than trying to pull something out of someone's hands, which at this point in 2017 is, as you note, nearly impossible. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, so because I work as a, I don't know that I've said this yet, but I work as an illustrator and author of picture books we were for getting children. To it. <laughs> but um, so I'm in a, you know, somewhat unique position that I interact with librarians, a lot of children's librarians mostly, and I'm able to talk to them about some of some of these things and particularly because i write books for two different age ranges i write like humor-based um picture books for young kids like preschool through first grade second grade and then for fourth through sixth seventh eighth grade i write uh non-fiction picture books and some of those non-fiction picture books deal with concepts that would not necessarily be appropriate for those younger kids. So I have to kind of draw a line that says, you know, I'm not going to talk about prohibition with the kindergartners because I just don't want to have that conversation with them. They'll have it at some point, but like that's not my role in this uh, situation. And, you know, the librarians are great gatekeepers. You know, they are, because they're not they're not locking the gate. They're, they're showing you which direction to go in the mm-hmm. library. And I think for the most part, um, the librarians are really, really good at knowing that kids should be exposed to a wide variety of things. And they just, they help find the right book for the right kid. And they're, that's what their job is. And that's what their, if that's their job, that's their passion, you know. Um, I think typically it's parents or maybe administrators in whatever particular system has that material that doesn't want to have that conversation. I was uh, called to the principal's office at a recent school visit because there were third graders in the audience and I read one of my books, Tricky Vic, which is a 
it's the true story of a con artist who in 1925 sold the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal. Mm -hmm. He convinced these scrap metal dealers that they were going to tear down the Eiffel Tower, which at the time was not really that unheard of. Um, the Eiffel Tower was only supposed to be there for 20 years when it was first built. And in that story, we talk about prohibition, we talk about he's a con man, so we talk about a lot of the different uh, counterfeiting schemes that he had. And after the presentation, I got called to the principal's office and... Um, not over the intercom, but you know the the <laughs> Greg Pizzoli, principal's office. But now, I mean, the the teacher, one of the, the teacher, very kind, who had brought me in, said, you know, the the principal said he wanted to talk to you, and I I walked in thinking like, all right, I'm gonna get my check, you know, this is, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I remember he said, um, he said, I just wanted to hear from you what you were hoping to get out of that because I've had a number of complaints from teachers. And this is like five minutes after I finished the presentation. Uh, do you, so do you think that there really weren't any complaints? Or I mean, I think that there were... Look, I had a Q&A after the talk, and I there were a lot of questions from the kids, and there was one teacher after, after the talk who came up to me and said, you know, we're learning about prohibition right now. This ties in perfectly with our curriculum. Like, you know, the, that was so great. And look, I don't, I don't need the praise, but I would have appreciated if there were teachers who had... If, who had uh, reservations about the material would have maybe asked a question and we could have had that conversation. But instead, the reaction from those, you know, unnamed teachers and presumably this principal was um, to sort of sh shut it down, you know. And it ended up like, it was fine. Like, I, I admit, like, I have a little bit of a problem with authority. So, like, I, you know, raise up yeah, a little yeah, bit when yeah. someone says something like that to me and I... I said, uh, you know, he said, you know, I was just hoping, I want to know what you were hoping to get out of that. And I said something to the effect of like, I don't know, encourage literacy in children. Like I was <laughs> not, not uh, really in a place to have that conversation at the time. Um, but really, I mean, the, the thing that I wanted those kids to understand is that history is not written only about heroes and not only good people in this world have ever existed. And, you know, in the author's note in that, uh, book I talk about th that there are con artists that I witness them pulling a con they tried to pull a con on me in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower when I was in Paris researching the book um, is it beneficial for a kid to know that there are con artists working in the world I would argue yes you know, um, yeah, does that mean that they're going to become con artists I don't think so <laughs> um, no there's probably more people who are potentially victims of people engaging in that behavior than people who emulate the behavior and want to engage in the behavior. Sure, of course. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I have come up on, up against that, even though I don't, you know, not, uh, I don't write for the young adult genre where they're dealing maybe with uh, sexual identity or, you know, things that people, um, or alcoholism, or, you know, like they're more concerned about exposing children to it. Um, but I have had a little taste of it because of that book. And my nonfiction books are, they're meant to be um, somewhat provocative because I think a lot of the history books that are put forward to, for kids to read are pretty boring. And mm -hmm. I don't mean to dismiss anyone's work. I'm a big fan of everybody, but... <laughs> big um, fan of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, well, okay. But I'm a big fan of many people, but um, for me personally as a kid, you know, 
you could see through right through that George Washington cherry tree story. I mean, any five-year-old knows that yeah. <laughs> that's complete garbage. Yeah. So um, I was writing the writing a book about a con artist because it interested me, and I was wanted to. I was fascinated by how the cons worked, and I'll tell you, man, like every kid I go to school, the idea that he had a a box that printed money. He had a money printing machine. That's like every ten year old's fantasy. Yeah, yeah. That that I want to hear about. Yeah. I was listening a couple of weeks ago I saw the writer uh, China Mieville was speaking at the Free Library mm-hmm. and he just wrote a history of um the communist revolution mm-hmm. and he had done a lot of research and reading many, many books and he would say that in reading these histories, he would read this really long, very dry history of this uh subject. And then occasionally there would be one line where it would talk about a religious sect in uh, in Russia where they uh, cut off their genitals as a as a religious practice, and it would just be one sentence, and you'd say, "What? What is this? I, I want to know about this. Like, why isn't there more information about this thing?" So when he wrote his book, he wanted to focus on all of these peculiar things because he, as a reader, these were the things that were most interesting to him, and he could never understand how someone could write an eight hundred page book and then just throw that off in just one sentence. Yeah, it's there. like a little throwaway thing. Yeah, the, and then the he, general mutilation. Yeah, plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You know, I, I made this maybe tangential, but the the history thing. So the books that I'm writing for for that age range, there it's a series of three nonfiction picture books, and the first one's about a con artist who sold the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal. The second one comes out in June 2017. It's called The Quest for Z. And it's about an explorer who becomes obsessed with the idea that there's a lost city in the Amazon and then goes missing. So again, like not a typical hero. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, spoilers, it's not a very happy ending. <laughs> yeah. um, and the third book in the trilogy is a biography of John Wilkes Booth. And John Wilkes Booth, uh, if you are, are not familiar with the history, is the man who assassinated Abraham Lincoln, 16th president of the United States. And I grew up... Uh, you know, at least eighth grade and later in York, which is like an hour drive from Gettysburg, uh, the site of one of the biggest battles of the American Civil War. And uh, I haven't been exposed to many people uh, in, who didn't see that as a one-sided conflict where the side that won, uh, the Union prevailed, and that was sort of the way that things were supposed to go. And um, I was in... Uh, Richmond a few years ago for a friend's wedding and I was you know I went to the Confederate White House and the Jefferson Davis's White House and the Museum of the Confederacy and I went to the um, saw some graves down there and on the way back I saw a road sign for John Wilkes Booth uh, like here's where he was shot you know just like a highway marker kind of thing like a blue and gold kind of Mm -hmm. mark on the side of the road and it said, I don't remember exactly what the verbiage was, but it said something effective like, here is where John Wilkes Booth was cornered and murdered by Union soldiers. Mm, yeah, murder is a very it's heavy, like, loaded cornered word. Cornered and yeah. murdered. It's like the dude yeah. two weeks ago shot Abraham Lincoln in the yeah, back of the yeah, head. Yeah, you know? U.S. president. Yeah, and then so you walk a little bit into the woods, and there's um, a little marker where this is actually where the barn was, where he was killed. Actually, he was shot by this guy... Uh, Boston Corbett, who uh, was a religious nut, and also he self uh, yeah. castrated. Yeah. Um, just bring it all back to what you were talking about. <laughs> but the the really interesting thing for me there was, um, you know, so the in the woods on the little marker there were a bunch of Lincoln pennies, and they were face down, 
And I wonder, like, oh, is it so? Is this a sign of disrespect to John Wilkes Booth to put Lincoln's face on this marker, or is this a sign of respect? Yeah, because it's a, yeah, because, because it's down. they were all, you know, they were all the, uh, tail side up, and it just like it spun this idea for me that it, I guess it was like one of the first times where you know, even post reading Howard Zinn's twentieth uh, century, like realizing that history is told from many different angles mm-hmm. and. Um, that I guess that was when I decided that I wanted to make that John Wilkes Booth book, and not not that I feel like I really want to tell his story to hear his side of it, yeah. but because I, obviously I disagree with his side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but even like what you just said, you know, he, the guy just shot the president. It's like it wasn't his president. You know, he was Jefferson Davis was his president. Yeah, so from yeah. his point of view, he shot a foreign dictator who was invading his country. You know, it's I'm not saying that I agree with any of that, but I. Um, of course I don't, but I think that just because the Union won the war and Lincoln is revered and Booth is reviled doesn't mean that there's not a story there that could be told and to understand, particularly in today's environment that like maybe understand um, someone else's point of view is something that should be encouraged from all sides. Mm-hmm. Is it a particularly difficult subject to pitch then to your publisher to say, you know, you're writing this book about a generally reviled uh, character for a really young audience? I mean, is this something that a publisher wants? You know, is, no, is, that's, is a, there... that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, are they looking at that like saying, oh, this is great. This is going to fill in this, this gap in the market that we really need in a children's job. I think, I, think, I think there's part of, I think it's partly that. So I think like, unlike um, a book about a con man who worked in the early 20th century or a British explorer that you may not have ever heard of, um, there is a space in American curriculum for the Civil War and for Abraham Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth at least gets a passing reference. So maybe they see, well, these kids will at least have known. Maybe they'll have to write a book report and I'll pick this this yeah. book or whatever. Um, but I think the way that I pitched it was that, uh, you know, John Wilkes Booth's father was an abolitionist from England. He was a vegetarian and he would reportedly... Uh, if he saw people eating meat at restaurants, would go up to them and whisper "murderer" <laughs> <laughs> as they as they tried to eat their dinner. So it's you, casting the light on the story for this. So the the guy who was raised, or the the kid who was raised by that guy, then grows up to uh, to you know assassinate Abraham Lincoln. Uh, how that happens, I think, is the story that sort of sold them on it, and. Um, you know, I haven't actually written the book yet. I've just sort of outlined it, but a big chunk of it is going to be the prior attempt before, uh, he decided that he was going to assassinate Lincoln. He actually had a plot to kidnap him. And the idea was that they were going to kidnap Lincoln and hold him as ransom for the release of a bunch of Confederate soldiers. And once Lee, the, uh, commander of the Southern forces surrendered at Appomattox courthouse, that went out the window because there was no... There was no nothing they could do yeah, yeah. at that point, and it went from being a kidnapping plot to a, a murder, assassination plot. Um, so it's like just a fascinating. Everybody loves a good uh, assassination story. Too. Yeah, I th- and I think it's, it's really a, an interesting approach because I think I mean I remember as a kid, in in going through American history, where they had to cram in a lot of information in a relatively short period of time. You know, you're moving in a great span of time, especially if you're going into 
you know, if you're starting with the Greeks and the Romans and trying to get through as much as you can to the 20th century. 1945. Yeah, so yeah, that's usually where everything ends because yeah. Vietnam gets a little tricky. Yeah. Um, and I think that sometimes there's characters like Booth who will appear in history who really are relegated to a sentence or two for kids. Um, so he's sort of a shadowy figure who comes in, he does this horrible thing, and that's essentially, that's it. He just sort of passes out of history and then you move on to the, you know, the next stage of the, the Civil War, the post-Civil War period. So it's interesting that you would take a character like that and provide this illumination about about this person uh, for young people who probably otherwise just have this you know single sentence, two sentence mention. In... Yeah, and I I think um, yeah I think he's just I mean I have busts of Lincoln on top of my bookshelf. Lincoln has always been a big figure in my life. Did I... you read the George Saunders book that just came out, the Lincoln and the Bardo? Um, I I haven't. No, is it? good uh i most of it uh i read it as an audiobook and what's interesting oh, okay. about the audiobook is it's read by over a hundred people uh, because there's yeah. a, uh, over a hundred characters who who have very just a few lines some of them have more significant lines is that frustrating to listen to yes uh some of it because it, it sometimes it felt like uh like i was undergoing schizophrenia because i, I listen to audiobooks when i run and i would just hear these voices constantly cutting each other off and they're having reveries and thoughts and arguments and mental breakdowns and it was all going on inside of my head and it was it would get kind of exhausting and then if a character would speak at length and would tell a story then I'd be drawn into it the story that they were telling but when everybody was chattering it was it could be hmm. uh, a little off-putting um, hmm. I wonder how it is as a uh, a non-audio book you know, may, it may work better, but there were, I mean, there were things that I really liked. Some of the readers were really great. They used a mix of non-professional and then some professional readers that I've heard from other audio books, and then a lot of famous people come in, so you get cameos from their voice, like David Sedaris plays a pretty significant role, yeah. and, and some other people. Um, Nick Offerman is probably the most significant reader in there. Huh. Okay. So it, it, it oh, I'll check it out. I do listen to a fair number of audio books since I, you know, I'm an illustrator, so I'm alone in a room or with my wife in a room 10 hours a day most, yeah. of the, most of the time. So I've listened to a fair number of audiobooks. Um, I think the book that really got me into it, I, I can't recall the the author's name, but it was um, the book is called Manhunt. Now, I think it was like a number one New York Times bestseller a few years ago. And um, that sort of, you know, growing up, you know, somewhat near uh, battlefields and going to Gettysburg every summer with my dad and... Um, watching the Ken Burns documentary so many times as a kid like I think I had a always an interest in it um and I th think this book Manhunt though really talked a lot about Booth and, and his early life and I've since read many books um about his his childhood and his early life and his brother who uh went on to become a very very famous actor who uh hosted presidents at his house like long after John Wilkes Booth's death um so it's just an interesting family overall. And I think, I, I don't know that I have a thesis for why I wanted wanted to do these three books in this way, or um, it would be hard to say in a, in a, like a quippy kind of way, like why I want to tell those particular stories for kids. But I think that I just find them interesting. And I think they're stories that I feel like I would have loved as a kid and they were a lot different maybe than a lot of the things that I was exposed to mm -hmm. um and I've been lucky in that you know other kids have have found them interesting too 
I guess we should talk a little bit about punk since it is uh, loud, fast, Philly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's get loud. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you you came through punk. I mean, clearly that was something that you were involved in for some length of time. Um, so if you could tell me a little bit about what you know, what drew you to punk, what were you listening to, how were you involved in that scene? Yeah, so um, I, you know, in York, um, I think the first record that I would consider, like, punk or at least quasi-punk that I, I remember like listening to for the first time uh, was Pixie Surfer Rosa like mm-hmm. that was I remember where I was like sitting on my carpet of my room like uh, in my Iowa boombox like listening to the CD mm-hmm. um, and that sort of was a just a contrast to like what most people at my high school were listening to um I didn't like there. There were some kids who were like into Bowie and and stuff like that. Like I in high school was not into Bowie. I thought it was like super lame. Um, later I like fell totally in love with him. But I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, you know, Ziggy Stardust is is one of my favorite records. But um, at, at the time I just, I didn't get it. Um, and eventually I just found the Clash. I mean, the Clash were like my first and biggest. Uh, punk love you know um i had their their first record was was really big for me they sort of lost me at like sandinista and some of some of that stuff and i don't uh like most people don't think that cut the crap is a clash record but um i'm maybe a little weird and that london calling's like not my favorite one give them enough rope is my favorite clash record it's like the most rocking one i think Mm -hmm. um it just has some of my favorite songs on it and um so i was listening to stuff like that and kind of playing music with buddies of mine in high school um but we were not real i mean our original songs were terrible and i was at the same time that i was listening to um starting to listen to punk music i was listening to like what kids in that like what we all like like pearl jam and nirvana and like stuff like that i was from the hometown where the band live was from Mm -hmm. and i totally rejected them like when i moved there um it was kind of like if you didn't have like a live patch in your backpack you weren't cool or whatever and i was just (laughs) like hate this band like i don't want anything to do with it um and eventually i um a friend of mine uh who i remember like went to a I was super jealous. I couldn't couldn't go, but he went and saw um, Sonic Youth open for Pearl Jam, and like he sort of turned me on to a bunch of like gave me some Sonic Youth burn CDs, and I got into that stuff, and then eventually like the Dead Kennedys and like more like proper like just straight up punk bands, um, and listened to that stuff all through high school and. Was there anything about what they were saying that resonated with you? I mean, did you pay attention to the lyrics at all? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely was writing the lyrics, like, in the margins of whatever worksheet we were supposed to be doing in yeah. classes. You know, the lazy teacher put a movie on or whatever. Um, but, I, yeah, I, uh, I mean, I think I probably remember the first time I heard Kill the Poor by the Kennedys, and it was just like... Uh, you know, Jello Biafra is a polarizing figure for a lot of reasons, but like, as a 15 year old or something, hearing someone say, uh, or you know, that song that's the title starts too drunk too. Yeah. Um, 
like hearing those lyrics and talking or like terminal preppy and like, like, you know, those were the kids that like, I, uh, in the, the football team or whatever that I just like didn't understand. Like he put words to that, um, feeling of not understanding them. And not only like not feeling, um, just like that you were being rejected, but that you were rejecting that. I think that was like huge. That's like what punk was for me. Like no longer just feeling like this, loser who like didn't have any friends but saying like yeah I don't, i'm not gonna be friends with you because you're like so full of crap you know <laughs> yeah. um and so i think that was pretty big for me and then you know they're all kind of like left-leaning you know typically most of them have have stayed that way with a few exceptions did you feel that you that your your personal politics uh, were already moving in that direction or did, did the punk move you in that direction meaning left-leaning i mean i was probably like pretty centrist to start with but where i grew up that meant that i was like way left mm -hmm. um i you know it's like a relatively small town where we got off of the first day of hunting season we got off school because everybody would go hunting anyway and little, little greg wasn't hunting. I'm, I'm vegetarian <laughs> and have been for years um i wasn't hunting but uh you know, I remember like vividly, you know, uh, pickup trucks with like Confederate flag stickers on the on the bumper and, um, you know, just racism, you know, and uh, anti-Semitism. And, you know, I just always felt strongly that that uh, was something that I didn't want to be a part of. And um, it was easy to like not... Um, to not feel like it was happening because I think we had like one African or like maybe two African-American kids in my year in my graduating class and my best friend in high school was Jewish and I think he might have been like the one Jewish kid in the mm -hmm. school you know um, and so there was like this ugly kind of there was this like ugliness all around and it didn't maybe come out like too overtly all the time but it was it was like a safe space for hillbillies and mm -hmm. um you know it, i was i was ready to go like, i love I was, the idea of a safe space for hillbillies yeah. <laughs> it was called the united states of america my friend <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah I, I i was ready to like get out of there and you know my dad is like pretty progressive in a lot of ways like he's a social worker and um has been for, for his entire life uh, but he also came from like a small coal mining town in central Pennsylvania. So he's, he's like very social, um, socially minded, but like maybe kind of conservative in his like personal politics too. And like just his friend groups and his circles or whatever. So punk was like a way that, um, you know, all these kids that I went to high school with, and I have friends that I'm from high school that I'm still friends with today. Um, like two, <laughs> but, um, you know, those were the kids that, like, we would go to, like, skate parks and, like, see uh, shows, um, punk shows, and then there'd be, like, hundreds of kids, mm -hmm. um, you know, skating, and there's, like, you know, really crappy screamcore bands playing, and, we're, and, like, I'm just loving every second of it, because it's just not um, what I was seeing day to day or yeah. what I was exposed to. Yeah, that's one of the things I was going to ask you about, was the, the initial bands that you mentioned were older, the Clash, Dead Kennedys. Yeah, how did you make the transition into seeing that 
that this thing was actually something that was still happening and that you could then be a part of. It wasn't something that it was just going on in the you know, 70s or early 80s. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, like going to skate parks and um, I, you know, had a skateboard but was never any good and, like, too lazy to learn how to do it. Um, it any, any better than just, like, staying on for three seconds. Um, but I would go to shows there and... Um, I remember seeing, uh, you know, this band, the Clancy Six, like, play, you know, they were basically like York, York, Pennsylvania's version of the Locust, like all their songs were like 25 seconds long, and yeah, they were they scream, the scream, scream core kind of yeah. stuff, yeah, and um, there was a band called Vincent Price's Orphan, Orphan Powered Death Machine that, you know, I'm <laughs> sure, I'm, yeah, I'm sure I couldn't, like, and they put, like, straight edge X's on either side of their name just to, like, mess with the straight edge kids, like, just to, to like, make a joke of it, um, <laughs> And, like, you know, is that kind of, like, uh, thumbing their nose at, you know, even, like, oh, there's punk conventions where we're going to, like, thumb our nose at that, you know? And I'm sure there are, there are great guys, and I'm sure their records are unlistenable now, but, like, at the time, like, buying a 7-inch, like, from them was, like, this was, like, a sacred object. Yeah. Um, and I think from there, like, from in college, um, you know, I filled in on instruments I could barely play on band like for uh, friends bands like playing a VFW hall or something like that um, and just kind of was attracted to the the same punk kids that I found at the college um, and then like later I met my a buddy of mine like sophomore year and he was really kind of like from the same place that I was like grew up in the same like different town but like same kind of scene he just had an older sister so he had like a much better musical uh selection like he knew a lot more but he knew like public image limited like when he was a uh, 12 or something mm -hmm. like that yeah. and um he introduced me to a ton of stuff and like a a, a ton of like older punk stuff and a, um we used to listen to this band Liars all the time, like um, like they were like dancey punk, and then they kind of became like weird, like they could have opened for like Can or something. Um, and he got me into like really, I think kind of cool stuff, and it introduced me to like good rap music, which I hadn't heard much of yeah. <laughs> before then. And uh, then I, I was playing in that uh, band in Baltimore, and that's when we were, we were, you know, we, we could have been opening for, like, uh, Wolf Eyes or Black Dice or something like that. Not that we were, uh, had enough street cred to do so, but we were, like, same improvisational, like, uh, crazy craziness. Um, and that was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. Um, but I wasn't ever, like, talented enough as, like, playing any instrument or, um, hardworking enough to like get really good at it and I really just enjoyed like hanging out with my friends and playing music and doing shows and I loved making the flyers and the posters and the inserts for the CDs and stuff like that and I think that's eventually what morphed into me than making gig posters for other bands and figuring out like oh I'm actually want to work really hard at this thing this is probably what I should be doing because the thing that i'm most excited about for this record is like screen printing the cds right um, not so much performing and yeah yeah, yeah yeah 
Man. You mentioned uh, gatekeepers um, before with librarians as gatekeepers for kids, you know, and, and pointing them towards the right book. And I think it, it seems like you've had other gatekeepers who are, you know, the older sister or the friend who says, hey, you know, take a look at this, that there's this crucial role that people play in the lives of, of others is, you know, steering them towards something that would potentially enrich yeah. them. I feel like I would have been a completely different person or I maybe the same person, but I would have had skipped ahead 10 years if I had like a cool older brother who could have like, you know, my dad is a great guy and his favorite band is Journey. And like, there was only so much he was going to introduce me to that yeah, I was yeah. going to respond to. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think that that's, you need people who are like willing to proselytize the, these other, these cool things and get them in front of you. And, uh, I think we were talking about that before we started recording, just like enthusiasm is something I'm always attracted to with people. It's just like, if, even if I don't have no interest in the thing that you're talking about, I'm super into the idea that you're just enthusiastic yeah, about no, it. I, that, I feel the same like way it. because... The, the cynicism that seems to, to permeate a lot of people to corrode them like a cancer is really exhausting and is the most boring pose that I think anybody could put on. So, yeah. I mean, I just always feel this attraction towards anybody who feels this excitement, this, this joy of something. Uh, you know, even if it's a hammer, uh, maybe it's a beautiful Art Nouveau hammer. But whatever it is, yeah. I'm curious to see what it is that, that brings Look at that handle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there has to be something, you know, yeah. unless it's sports. And I found that I found that really frustrating with with the punk community early on too. With not that so much a cynicism, but just like I didn't know a lot of the stuff. And it's like if you didn't know, then you weren't cool. Like if you if you had to ask, then you would never know. Kind of feeling. And sometimes you just don't know, and you want to know, and you need somebody yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. to to show it to you. So luckily, I had my buddy Sean was like able to uh, to share a lot of that stuff with me. And then you know the internet you sort of like you search for one thing and it sort of takes you down endless alleys and uh you can find all kinds of things and um the stuff i really connected with when i was later in high school um like junior year on was like let's fugazi and like the discord scene and i was super into the band black eyes um that was a later discord band and saw them in philly um play with an albatross and like at maybe at the church or at the rotunda or you know someplace um and so like later on in high school and all throughout college i was living between philly and baltimore and i would just like ping pong between the two seeing as many sometimes go down to dc for the black hats sometimes mm -hmm. go up to um or i guess maybe nine thirty club and sometimes go up to new york for shows up there but most of the time like between philly and baltimore i had it covered um and had a lot more friends in those scenes in that in that community than I did, you know, at the college. But luckily, I had like three really good friends in college that uh, introduced me to like the Talking Heads and David Bowie and like stuff that I thought was like super lame in high school, but then got really really into yeah. it. Yeah. You mentioned uh, when when we were talking before that you spoke at I don't know if it was a library conference where you talked about punk the three. Yeah. Three points. I mean, if you, you could tell me a little bit about that, like what what were you speaking about, and how did this punk connection come into what you're doing? So the conference was, it was for like aspiring writers um, and illustrators of picture books, and I was on a panel with uh, three other people, and we were just kind of supposed to talk for like five minutes, and then we were going to have 
they had a moderator who asked us questions. We just have a panel discussion. Um, and I don't remember all three points, but I remember the first one was, uh, so it was, it was drawing comparison, like what I learned from punk music that you could apply to picture books or what punk taught me about life that you can apply to picture books or whatever. And the first was, uh, that, you know, keep it short. And I talked about like, you know, uh, the Ramones or, you know, bands that have really short songs, um, as either Ramones or maybe seem kind of long by punk standards. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, my first book, The Watermelon Seed, is, a, is only 140 words long. And it's it's that same kind of thing where it's like you want, when you're talking to or reading to a three-year-old, like they're kind of squirmy and they're kind of hungry and it might almost be nap time, mm. but you want to entertain them in some way. And... Um, you're probably going to have to read this story a hundred times like over the next month because yeah. when kids latch onto a book, they want the same one over and over and over again. Um, so keeping it short is is a good way to facilitate a, a nice story time experience for everybody, parent included. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and another one was just that like it could be anything. You know, like I'm really... Um, I, I think I try really hard to have my books feel different from one another. I, re I feel, I don't know, there's, I, I, I'm also trying really hard not to say this in a way that sounds utterly pretentious, but I, I feel like with a picture book, you kind of get like a clean slate every single time. Um, there's nothing that says that my next picture book has to look or sound anything like my last picture book, and I want to capitalize on that freedom. And so I'm really happy that, you know, the quest for Z, the one about the jungle explorer is coming out in June. And then in September, uh, the 12 days of Christmas is coming out, which is published by Disney and is a cartoony kind of elephant take on a classic Christmas carol. And they're going to sit next to each other, like on a bookshelf somewhere, mm -hmm. um, in the Pizzoli section of the bookstore or whatever. And I, I like that, uh, I can sort of, that it can be anything. And I, I think that's another thing that like, uh, I learned from punk music was that the clash like dude that first record um, where they end I think it's the last song on the first record maybe where they end with police and thieves and you're like whoa this is a lot different than everything mm -hmm. else yeah. and then where you uh, you know grow to you know to London Calling or to Combat Rock and all of a sudden Allen Ginsberg is like reading over yeah. you know you're like what is this um, but it can kind of all like works and can sit together in that same universe so I I really like that I mean I I remember the first time I heard the argument by Fugazi and I was like what is this this is garbage you know I was really into uh, red medicine you know a different kind of sound and uh have since like that I think Argument's probably my favorite record by by them but they were another one where I felt like they were always changing it up and trying to like push themselves to do different things um so I think the second point was that it can be anything that you don't have to feel like it has to be necessarily kid appropriate like what we were talking about mm -hmm. before like whatever that means and it doesn't need to be condescending in any way kids can understand all kinds of stories told in all kinds of different ways and they don't actually like things to be sanitized like the same way that you don't mm -hmm. um or anybody does doesn't um 
I don't remember what the third thing was, but it was, I think it was funny. I think I might have, I tried to end on a joke or something like that. <laughs> well, is there a, a voice, and not, not an internal voice, but an external voice, like an agent or a publisher who wants to see you maybe repeat yourself in a certain way, like, you know, develop a certain character or characters that can be very, you know, easily marketed and that and you would just follow that path? Because it seems like, you know, the way that you're describing what you do is rather more eclectic. You know, it really is you are choosing to explore this thing and, and you go in that direction. But it seems like, at least from my outward perspective, that, that there would be more of maybe a marketability of something that had a certain consistency. I mean, is that, does that come yeah. to you? Do you hear this? Yeah, that's probably uh, why my books are, are not as popular as they, <laughs> as they could be. No, I, I mean, I think... I I uh, am pretty deliberate about that um, in that, like, the book The Twelve Days of Christmas is being published by Disney Hyperion, who's the same publisher who's done The Watermelon Seed and Number One Sam and Good Night Al and the books for the pre-K through second grade audience. And then I have a different publisher. Oh, you have a different for this. Uh, yeah, Penguin one. publishes the nonfiction stuff. So it's, they, uh, they're published by Viking, which is part of Penguin Random House. Um, Pretty great to be published by Penguin, though, right? Yeah, sure. To have the first time I saw that spine uh, with the little uh, orange penguin on yeah, it, and yeah. it's great to be published by Disney too. You know, I taught my old publicist. You know, is a, a huge uh, Dead Milkman fan and like huge into like Riot Girl kind of punk, and we used to joke about like you know being working for Disney or whatever. And they're the the good thing about it is that they're um, it's they're sort of like a little cottage publisher based in this like this giant universe um that now has so many different entities under the same umbrella but disney hyperion is like this little place over here where only these really hard-working dedicated editors and art directors and uh, book designers and everybody works there and they're sort of separate from you know what you can interpret as like the noise of the the rest of the place and viking is the same way under penguin it's like it all seems like this sort of monolith that you can never sort of crack into, but then when you you sort of learn the different people are in these like separate little entities within that big space. Um, but to go back and answer your your question, yeah, I am pretty deliberate about. So there are different publishers, um, Tricky Vic and the Quest for Z, and I assume the Booth book. I haven't written it yet, so I can't say, but I assume that they'll all be the same trim, the same like page size and a similar kind of format mm -hmm. um and that is like one it's just like i i like that format i came up with it for the first one and i just i don't see a reason to change it um but it also means that they sit really nicely next to each other on the shelf and then kind of feel like they're from the same universe this is a trilogy of books yeah know? yeah i mean i feel that way about the penguin books on my shelf with the you know uniform spine design mm -hmm. and the little dude you know the penguin at the bottom is that it creates like a body of work that you right this feel is like a, yeah. a set you know yeah. um and yeah for the, the disney hyperion well in terms of what you were asking i guess is like is there pressure to uh i i've never felt i, I mean i i think things have been hinted at you know if you watermelon seed my first book was was, was my best-selling book and it won um a big award and it was has gone through many printed iterations and is um, a very popular book still. And so, you know, I think 
if I were to say like, "Hey, I wrote the watermelon seed too," like return of the <laughs> watermelon, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, you know, there would be, uh, there would probably be some groans from from my editor who's like would would eye that with a lot of suspicion. But then th- there would also be probably some uh, hardworking salespeople who'd be like, "Oh, okay, this is going to be great," you know. Yeah. Um, but I think. I've just been supremely lucky in that um, I have a really close relationship with with both of my editors, and they uh, sort of understand where I'm coming from. And that um, I think that's the the kind of thinking that would like result in a watermelon seed two more watermelons would is is short term thinking. In um, it's 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 got nothing to do with making a great book. It's got nothing to do with telling a good story or enriching a kid's life experience it's about like cashing in and you know probably not cashing in on that much because it's not like the watermelon seed it's you know it's it's not a it's not mickey mouse or something like that is there a product line associated with anything that you've done because you've created these you know very adorable characters or do they exist in a you know a physical they do actually this this year there there's a company in new york really great um, toy manufacturer called Yatoy. It's like toy backwards and then toy, Y-O-T-T-O-Y. And they um, are making plushes of the crocodile from the watermelon seed who's holding a crocodile, uh, uh, holding a watermelon. Um, number one Sam from the book Number One Sam who's got a little chick with him. And um, Al from Goodnight Al and the little mouse who's in Goodnight Al whose name is Noise. And so there's, you know, this series of three plushes but it's it's one big plush with a little guy so i haven't they they haven't been released yet i think they're coming out this summer so i haven't yet had the experience of like getting the photo tweeted at me with a little kid like sleeping with it or something but i, <laughs> well, I you'll have, get it i have had photos of uh the kids asleep with the book in bed or something and that's you know insanely cute um but i think you know going back to what i was what we were talking about um you know not not making that sequel what or or whatever i think that's a short-term kind of view and i'm lucky in that um my editors are sort of invested in me and not necessarily just the next book um but they're invested in it and when you take a long view look at a career and say okay this is something i'm trying to build out over 30 40 50 years mm-hmm. um those those kinds of like cash in kind of or whatever they become uh it's apparent that they're not really going to add up to much in the end and um i think because of that sort of cottageness of the different houses i'm able to you know just keep continue to work with those people that i really like and so far i mean so far watermelon sea was a big seller and uh, my last book good night out also won a an award and so they've been selling well enough to say like, okay, this theory is, is working in some way. <laughs> it must be interesting to think that as you build a body of work, I mean, you continue to be published, you, you produce more work, that at some point, if you, you know, go decades into the future, that people will be analyzing your oeuvre, you know, d- discussing like the, the thematic threads and the connections between the different books, that you create a thing that will in effect exist forever and that people will look into, you know, right. look into what you have created. Yeah. 
people, I mean, I, I think that goes back to some of the thing that we were talking about before we started recording where the idea that like each book has to have a message or, you know, you're supposed to teach something to the child. And, um, I'm not saying that you were suggesting that, but that's, that's a, an idea that is popular amongst, um, parents and teachers and pe- some people that make children's books. And that's not something that I've ever felt. Um, it's something that I've tried to work against, but I, I think like most art, I, I think you don't really know what you're saying until like after you have made it and how it's interpreted by, see how it's interpreted by the world. Um, and looking back at the four or five books that I've made with Hyperion, at least, you know, the watermelon seed is about a crocodile who loves watermelon and then swallows a seed and worries about it's going to grow in his stomach and he's basically he's going to die and he doesn't want that to happen. Number one, Sam is about a race car driving dog who always gets number one and then uh, loses a race to his best friend and sort of has to deal with what that means. Uh, Templeton Gets His Wish is about a cat who doesn't like his family, so he sends away for a magic diamond and wishes them to all disappear. (laughs) And Goodnight Owl is about an owl who, there's a noise in his house and he can't figure out what it is, so he ends up dismantling the entire house and tearing the house apart until he falls asleep at the end after realizing it's a mouse. And what all of those, you know, at some point, I looked at those four books and realized that three of those four of those books have a scene where the main character is in bed at night unable to sleep is that you because of the anxiety right well you know i don't know that it's me i mean it's at least partly me right um i wrote it and i drew it (laughs) but you know so it's it's then when you can sort of lay all four of them out and uh you know the ones coming up and and sort of know see those connections and say like, oh man, these are, this is all about anxiety. You know, the watermelon seed is about, I think like anxiety about, uh, about life, about not being able to control things, you know? And number one, Sam is the anxiety of like being in competition with your friends or with other people. Um, Templeton's about, you know, family strife, you know? And um, but then also at the end of the book, he misses his family and he wishes them back. And he really like the thing that, that sounds like it's a really happy ending and everything turns out great. But the thing that is at the end of Templeton gets his wish, his family doesn't change. Like his situation doesn't get any better. His parents are still as mean to him and his brothers are still, mm-hmm. um, little jerks to him and everything. But his perception of what that means has changed because, uh, because he's changed, you know? And uh, Good Night Out, it's about, you know, controlling the unknown. It's about anxiety of, I mean, I, I think I was writing uh, writing that book and working on it as we were like putting in offers on our first house and like trying to buy our house. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a scene where Al is like up at night holding his pillow. My wife used to uh, joke that, that like that was us with our mortgage application or something. No, I, I can know? relate to this completely. <laughs> you know, um, but you figure out a way. That, like those are universal things. You know, those are everybody has problems with their family or everybody has anxiety about something. And I uh, just try to find a way that I can tell that universal fear or anxiety about something in a way that you know I can make it about an animal that's a stand-in for a preschooler or a kindergartner or something mm-hmm. and. Um, make it somewhat relatable in that way. Um, and it's a little less terrifying 
if it's a crocodile imagining vines growing out of his ears than if it were a little kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? But you, you've been in a lot of schools then talking to kids, and this is, again, something we, we talked about earlier, but I wanted to amplify a bit here, was the way that you communicate with the, the kids and what, you know, what is it that they want from you? What are they curious about? And then how is it that you can relate to them? Like, I don't have a lot of children in my life, so I'm not exactly certain how I would communicate to a lot of children. So I'm curious how you go about that process and what comes out of it. So yeah, I do, I do visit a lot of schools. I visit probably, uh, this year, probably I'll visit 40 schools and usually I do three presentations a day at each school. Um, and I think the thing that is probably most meaningful for them just right off the bat is seeing an author that exists. And I never had that as a kid. Like I, I don't think I realized until I was 20 that actual people wrote books. You know, you yeah, know, they like live a, in some <laughs> other place. There's it's just like a name on the book. It doesn't yeah. mean anything. Maybe if I like that, this one, I'll buy one with the other, the, the same name on it. But it, you know, it, it didn't mean anything to me, certainly as a kid. Um, so seeing someone go up to the front of the, the class and say, you know, who here likes to draw and everybody raises their hand because every kid likes to draw. And at some point in your life, you're, it's beaten out of you because somebody tells you you're not good at it or it's, you're never going to make any money doing it or, or whatever. Um, uh, but Hey, here's somebody who claims to have a house and, uh, is, is wearing clothes and <laughs> is in front of us. And he's, he says that I can draw, you know, I, I think that that's like, first and foremost, that's the thing is just seeing somebody, uh, with this career, um, for all those kids that like to write and like to draw that might just not see that in their lives any other way. Yeah. I don't want to interrupt you, but that kind of reminds me in a way of how punk would affect people in that they see people that look like them up on the stage, not, glorious glowing rock stars but i guess if you see someone who looks like you doing the thing then you think oh i i can do this thing too this person isn't from another planet they live down the fucking they live down the street that's <laughs> <laughs> the curse of this whole thing that's uh, okay i i think um i've been trying hard to i almost flubbed up a couple things but uh, um i think yeah so i, I it's interesting the role that I go in as too, because I'm not a teacher, I'm not a principal, and I'm um, I'm not a parent, and I'm younger maybe than a lot of those other people. But I'm in my 30s, like I'm, so that presumably there are teachers there that are younger than me too. But I'm just not the same kind of authority figure, yeah. and so when I go in, I. I think at first I had to be real. The first couple times I did school visits, I wore like a suit and a tie, and I went in and. I realized, like, oh, I'm just, like, another guy in a suit. Like, I'm just... Were you wearing a completely straight suit? Like, there was nothing particularly... I think I have... I, I mean, I have a tie that I wear a lot that has, like, a watermelon pattern on it because I'm, like, yeah. so kitschy. Um, <laughs> and, like, you know, I do get... Let, I do have from that era of, of visits, I had... I have 
uh, <laughs> I have letters from kids where like 20 kids in the class like mention like I love your tie, you know, <laughs> which I totally you love. You need a stick. I totally love. Um, but yeah, you know, end up being Gallagher up there or something. But um, <laughs> yeah, you can't smash the watermelon and say something <laughs> right. really racist. Well, maybe it, was he really racist? Did oh yeah, he he's been known for saying really really racist. Uh, oh, I remember watching him as a kid. You know. Yeah, um, I think now the Gallagher that people see is really out there uh like racist oh. and, and nasty and oh, uh God. Th- th- if you listen to the uh the wtf podcast I do, the mark yeah. maron thing he has an interview with gallagher from several years ago where it's he has a complete meltdown i mean it's a really a, a uncomfortable thing to listen to wow oh, i can't wait to listen to that yeah. i don't i don't know if it's one of those ones you have to pay to listen to because it's been yeah, so but you many can... years but don't tell Mark, but you can find them all on YouTube anyway. <laughs> um, I'm pretty certain he won't be listening to that. Be he might be. He, he might be a, a, a podcast fiend. He seems like an obsessive personality. But um, yeah, so I stopped wearing a suit at some point where I realized, like, at first, you know, you realize, like, all right, you think, well, the school is like paying you to come in. There, a lot of people are buying books. Like, you should dress up. You yeah. know. But then I realized that uh, maybe I looked too much like a teacher, and I don't dress up. That's not what my job is. Like, I, I, my studio is a 10-minute walk from my house, so I have to put on pants every day. But I wear a T-shirt to work a lot of times. Um, and In these situations, there's no voice that says you should be wearing this or you should be doing that. I mean, you just yeah, I mean, go I'd... in and do... Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I've, I've never experienced that. I mean, I haven't spoken to students at a lot of like catholic schools maybe where there would be like a dress code but i have been to like private schools where they they have a dress code and i wear i have a t-shirt that i designed that says i read banned books and i wear that most of the school visits and i bought your t-shirt oh you did oh thank you thank you um so i uh but i think so what i realized and i'm sort of edging my way to a greater point is that i could wear uh my Legend of Zelda slip-on sneakers and t-shirt that says I read banned books and a baseball cap and relate to the kids maybe even in a more meaningful way because I would look more like them. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time um, I mentioned that uh, I really love to play video games and the kids like, like gasped. They were like, and then so it came to Q and A at the end of it, and they were like, "What video game do you like?" <laughs> or like Xbox or PlayStation, you know? And like, um, I think there's this idea in, and you know, my my mom has it. Like my mom rolls her eyes uh, at the idea that I still play video games, but um, because she has this idea that it's like it's bad for you, it's bad for your brain or whatever, and I. I, I remember some of the first things that I read as a kid or the things that I read over and over again were manuals from Nintendo games. And mm-hmm. like, so telling that to a kid and telling them that like, that's okay. Like you can, you can do that and still go on to not be a complete degenerate in your, <laughs> in your life, the way that maybe some people are going to tell you or, um, and just trying to relate to them in things that they're interested in. And I've been lucky in that, you know, I've made a a lot of books in the last couple of years. My first book only came out four years ago, and I've, you know, have made like twenty or so books um, in that time, and um, so I have a lot to talk about. And there's you know different sort of things that kids are interested in that I can find ways to talk to them. But I think like not talking down to them, not condescending to them, and 
Um, I always I always hated that like like the Barney kind of complex where you know it's like hey kids let's talk about kids books. Um, I like honestly I go up and I'm like hey guys hey how you doing I'm Greg. Uh, I love to draw. Does anybody here love to draw? And we just talk about drawing. And then, you know, I introduce the books and I'll do a reading. And I do this thing now that I sort of discovered in the last six months that I did it once and it like just, it felt so right that I've done it every time since. And I, um, usually I ask, I say like, okay, we're going to have a, uh, I'm going to show you guys how to draw something the way that I would draw it. And, but I'm going to need a volunteer from the audience. Is there anyone who wants to volunteer? And every hand goes up, like every single hand. And I, I have this whole shtick where I'm like, um, oh, well, I, I only need one person. So we're going to have to have, you know, a little bit of a job interview here. We're going to have an audition. So mm-hmm. I, I'm going to ask you some questions. And so put your hands down. Is there anyone here? Jo- only raise your hand if you can draw this. And then I draw a triangle. And then, like, every hand goes up. And I act like I'm a little surprised, you know. And then... <laughs> They they kind of like get in on it, and then so it's they can draw like these five simple shapes that anybody can draw, any kindergartner can draw, um, which means they can all draw them. And the, you know the greater point. Then I pick somebody from the audience, and we draw together. And the greater point is like if you can draw those five shapes, then you can draw basically anything. But you can definitely draw the thing that we just drew together. And I was in Houston a couple weeks ago um, for four days of school visits at this international school where the kids were amazing. It was like they had one hour of English classes a day and the rest of the day was French and then the next day was Spanish and then French and Spanish. It was like they were trilingual genius kids. You know? <laughs> yeah. And um, I did that drawing exercise with them where I showed them how to draw Templeton the cat using those five shapes. And, you know, like an hour went by, I did another presentation and then it was like my lunch break. So we walked, we're walking to the cafeteria and we had to walk through the playground and all over the playground, like on the asphalt were drawings of Templeton in chalk where like yeah, where the things I literally had just shown them how to draw were everywhere. <laughs> did you get a all, picture? Of I got tons of pictures yeah, of it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thankful that one teacher like thought to like grab me and like show me that this was happening. And that's like, the main benefit I think of going to the schools is showing them that here, you know, here's a way to do this thing in a, in, in a way that's not intimidating and like you, is totally open and, and cool for you to try and you don't need a special marker and you don't need a special pen or paper or anything to, to draw and you don't have to draw it this one specific way that, um, you know, that school had an amazing art teacher, but sometimes art teachers can be very prescriptive and say that you've got to do it this one way. Um, so that's meaningful for me. Like, I was definitely a kid who stopped drawing for a certain time, like, stopped drawing for, like, almost 10 years, like, stopped making art, because I don't, I don't remember a specific person or instance where they were like, you're drawing wrong, but just, like, the overwhelming feeling of like you're not the best at this or you're not super good at it or you're never going to make any money or you're really good at this other thing so you should just do this Mm -hmm. thing um and i'm a big believer that drawing is good for everybody and it's super relaxing and it can be like a form of meditation so just like encouraging them to draw in any way is is worth it for me too i guess that segues well into like what i suppose will be our summation of the thing um which is another thing that we were talking about earlier was um, 
we now exist in the era of Trump. Uh, yeah. And saturating all and sundry, all minds from children to adults, is a sort of ceaseless cavalcade of, of intellectual tumors. This, this, this overwhelming blackness and mean-spirited nastiness and pervasive lies and prevarications and, and just illusions. Um, it's straight up propaganda. And I, I watched the Sean Spicer press conference that I listened to it as I was drawing. And it's laughable. I mean, it, it's it's absurdity. It's the theater of the absurd, you know, to, to hear him talk and defend the things that this so-called man that's been elected our president does. It's, I mean, Sean Spicer, you know, you might feel, some people might feel pity for him, but he has chosen this role and, he, you know, He's playing it straight to hell, you know. He's <laughs> yeah, yeah. His place in history is is oh man is assured yeah. and absolutely damning. Um, yeah, what was that? Yeah, I, I'm not gonna make any Nazi illusions. It's fine. Yeah, but, yeah, it's a, yeah. Uh, it, you know he. So, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I you know I don't know that this is necessarily even a question, but I think I think that there's a, there's an essential need uh, for other voices uh, to be heard, especially, I think, by impressionable people, young minds, sponges, to hear something that stands into the contrast of of the mean-spiritedness and the negativity, and and also something that, that for a lot of young people who aren't necessarily little rich white kids, is a negation of them and their family, saying that right. they're not wanted, or they're not important, or they're not appreciated. And certain people have more amplified voices than others. I mean, the big creep has one of the biggest voices. But you know, you're a writer uh, and an illustrator. You have a voice that's bigger than many people's because you get a chance to speak to other people. People will pay attention to what you say. So I imagine that for you that comes with a certain responsibility uh, and also a certain opportunity to be able to convey, maybe not even overtly, and not necessarily even covertly, but just to be able to put forward a, something in contrast to the big, great, horrible. And uh, so that yeah. isn't really a question, but I thought that there's probably something you could say about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, like most uh, level-headed <laughs> people that I know, I'm really struggling with the current state of things and sort of figuring out... Uh, how loud I want to be at what times because you can't uh, if you're not Donald Trump and a complete lazy narcissist like you can't just tweet into the the wind contradictory things all day long and and have blind followers follow you um, so you have to decide like where you're gonna put your energy and for me and my wife and our you know that means um, charitable places that we want to donate money to and that we want to support because we want them to continue to exist whether or not they have federal funding and um in my you know that is partial that i mean that's related to me as a writer because i am that's where i get my income from it's my own this is the only job i've had for almost six years um in terms of the message that i want to send to kids over you know I don't go into schools. I do a lot of these school visits, and I don't go up there and badmouth Donald Trump. Like it's just kind of like, 
the same way that when I go home for Thanksgiving to my uncle's house, I don't get into those arguments necessarily. Like they know how I feel, and the, I'm not going to convince you know my and the conversation that I would have with a, a disgruntled teacher or student in front of a, a bunch of other is is probably not going to change anybody's mind. But um, I do probably make less than subtle jokes sometimes um and i i'm writing a book right now that is really addressing this and i think probably i'm not alone in the kids book community. i would think that like in the next two years because books typically take about a year to make and then that another year after you turn it in before it hits store shelves because they need to get it printed and publicize it and all that stuff so it's about two years from the time that you get an idea for the book before it the earliest it could be on a shelf and I would bet in about two years there will be a lot of books about love and understanding and coming together and empathy from the kids book community because mm -hmm. it's a very you know progressive and liberal I mean they're book readers you know they're yeah they have a brain it's a functioning brain <laughs> right they're capable sure. of empathy because they've read other books in their life right sure sure and uh so I think there's probably going to be a lot of opportunities to have discussions with kids about that that kind of thing. Is there is there any kind of fear that you would be considered a left-wing writer and therefore certain parents wouldn't want their kids to read your books? Because other writers, uh, J.K. Rowling or Stephen King, you know, have said things against Trump. Yeah, I mean, any, anyone who followed me on Twitter would would know my exact politics and would know that, you know, based on who I retweet and things I say, you know, and protests that I've been to with holding up signs and stuff, that, that they would they would know my politics and that is that uh i voted for bernie in the primary and i voted for hillary in the in the general you know and that's uh because i dream big and i'm a pragmatist <laughs> <laughs> and uh and now you're a sore loser <laughs> i yeah yeah right now i'm a snowflake right and you know i think that that um the the at least the schools that I'm able to go to and the kids that live on my block that I interact with, um, they, they're they not racist, like the kids that live on my block. There's a Muslim family on my block and there's little white kids and we all play ladder ball together and we hang out and our parents are, we're all, I mean, I'm, I don't have kids so I'm kind of a different member of that community but I, I give out books on Halloween so like they know who I am or yeah whatever. so they know you're the you know the, the I'm the, the writer, I'm the drawler the, guy yeah, the I don't know guy. about famous writer but I'm, I'm the guy that gave him a book that one time and um at least in this like beautiful crazy dark weird spot of light called Philadelphia like there's hope there and I remember like just uh I went to the airport for the Muslim ban protest and and um, was there with the, you know, the 5,000 or so other people that were protesting and, um, I got screamed at by this lady who, uh, as I was leaving, a friend of mine, I somehow ran into a friend there and she ended up giving us a ride home. And as we were walking to the parking lot, this lady who was there as a passenger was not there for the protest screamed like obscenities at us that, you know, they missed a flight and they hope we're happy and we you know ruined their 
weekend or whatever and I just looked at it and I was like we're here protesting for people like you Mm -hmm. and it's just she just looked at me and she was like disgusted and just a more obscene profanity or profanity at me and it's like the lack of empathy there the lack of like seeing outside of yourself and i'm look i'm a selfish person i'm an artist i'm a narcissist too like i get it everybody's got flaws but the ugliness um is compelling i mean it's something we're all paying attention to because it's a train wreck we can't unwatch you know um, but those kids, man, I, I just don't see it in, in the kids. I don't, I, like, at least from what I see at a school with enough of either the financial ability to fly me out to their school or to enough of, like, a PTA presence that they can, like, bring me in, um, organized enough to, to get me in there. Those kids, like, there's n- they don't tolerate bullying, they don't talk like it's these this next generation of kids i have a lot of hope for and um i think that they are the ones donald trump is going to die and Wait, how, how soon is that gonna be? <laughs> i mean he's it's not looking too good for my view and uh and the kids today are the are the are the ones who are going to be voting those those next elections, you know, three cycles, four cycles from now, and who are going to be writing history, you know, the writing the history of this time period, and uh, I have a lot of hope for that generation. But you know, right now it's just frustrating as hell, and you just like can't look away, and it just it just bothers it honestly bothers me so much, and I get it. I get it because somehow this clown was elected president, but it just, like, I wish we could just ignore him. I wish he could just, like, tell people, like, don't write about every stupid tweet that he says. Just, like, just pretend he's not there. You know, like, tell the New York Times to mute, <laughs> to mute him. Because, like, you're just spending so much time just reporting on this, like, nonsense that contradicts itself. Um, Although I think, I mean something that sometimes people point out is that this nonsense that he's spewing is meant to cause this certain confusion that you're not supposed to know what's real and what isn't real. So I don't know, I don't know that anyone knows how much of that is calculating and at least not by him, maybe by some of the people around him. Yeah. But that perpetual state of not knowing what's real and isn't real. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard that too, that, you know, that this is a long game that, you know, he's, he's, you know, undermining democracy to its core so that, um, sort of all future elections will be, uh, a reflection of 2016 and that uh, nobody will know what's what's what anymore and a complete distrust in the press I mean it is working mm-hmm. hard toward that um, but I don't know I'm not, I'm not a political analyst or operative so to, to go back to your your bigger question um, there is a book that I wrote that will come out next year that I'm working on now I'm finishing the or midway through the art for it and I wrote it in like August of 2016 um so like nine months into Trump's campaign or when it was clear that he was like actually had a shot and it wasn't going to be Marco Rubio little Marco wasn't going to be president (laughs) um and I wrote it thinking like everybody else that Hillary was going to win and that you know 
okay, maybe we're going to have a $12 minimum wage instead of a $15 minimum wage, but come on. I mean, Hillary's going to win. Like, you know, those... Those were the days, man. I remember those days. I remember those days up until the night of the election. I remember walking home from the election I, I, and being I, so happy. Like, oh, I really? never have to I, listen to this creep again. Oh, I walked home after Florida was called, and I knew. Uh, I knew. Yeah, it was before this. <laughs> yeah, and I, I still, I, I saw, the, I watched the election results with my sister and my wife at um, a bar in Center City called uh, Strange Loves, and I... I can't go back there. I can't go back to the scene of the crime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, but I, I wrote this this text like I like I said. I imagine a lot of people. There will be a lot of these books coming out because th- this community has has felt th- this ugliness like everybody, and we have the ability to to make these books. That was about empathy. It was about loving something and loving something bigger than yourself and. Um, and I wrote it thinking that Hillary would win, you know, and I, I, the first time I read it to my editor, you know, I got like choked up and I like couldn't, I was like, I can't read this for you right now. I'm too embarrassed. Like you'll have to read, you know, later. And, um, she felt really strongly about it too. And, and then he won. I was just like, Oh my God, like this, it becomes like, look, my book's not going to change the world. It's not going to, um, it's not going to, unmake the 2016 election um but i do think that those kids coming up are these other people aren't going to die off and these kids coming up i have a lot of hope for them and so if i can in some small way be one good reading experience between a parent and a child and have it uh not necessarily just be a joke about anxiety but like this is a sentimental one this is just about love you know um i feel feel good about putting that out into the world you know and that's a that is a voice amongst other voices of of writers who in effect create a chorus which i think is is probably the most important thing is that you contribute a voice to a chorus and the chorus has weight you know and and that probably has an effect on these kids i mean you if you can say that books had a profound influence on you then you can extrapolate and say that your books can perhaps have a profound influence on other people yeah, I mean, uh, it's it, it's a, a slightly tangential again, but yeah, thinking about that is 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 mind blowing. Is um, you know because I, I and I've heard other people say similar things, but you know you you sort of sit in a room and you draw and you email with people and a box of books shows up and you have the books and you give some to your family and friends and then then you have a couple of books <laughs> and uh, then you you go across the country and you go into a bookstore and there's like somebody's leading a story time with your books and you're like what what, like, what what's happening here like how did this happen and um or you know go into i go into schools and you know the really good schools for months before my visit they're prepping for it and they're reading my books and discussing them and i had a kid ask me like at a school visit recently like why do you always put ladders in your illustrations? And I was like, what? Like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, in this this book has, there's a ladder, and then this one there's a ladder too, and then there's another ladder going up to the window. And I was like, holy crap, like, <laughs> this kid is, he's picked up on something I wasn't even aware of, you know? And, you know, I walk into those schools, and it's like, you're like a rock star, you know? It's like you see someone in the hall, and you're like, are you Greg Pizzoli? And I'm like, I am, good morning. And they're like, oh my God, that's Greg Pizzoli. <laughs> and it's, uh, 
you know, so it's just surreal to see how they can have that impact and go out there and, um, and it's, you know, you don't set out, um, to be an as an illustrator thinking that you're going to be a public speaker or go and, uh, read with kids or be a literacy advocate or whatever, you know, I, yeah, you're here, really just like to draw, you know, yeah. yeah, And I, I, I'd like to be alone, you know, um, for the most part, but, um, you know, that's, that's where the real work is, you know, the, the, the act of, uh, it, it's such a, like a collaborative effort because yeah, yeah, I'm making my thing and I'm doing my writing and I'm, I'm working collaboratively with an editor and an art director and, and a designer and production people and all that stuff. And then they're, you know, working with these salespeople to get it out there. And then there's librarians, um, who are reviewing the books and doing all that kind of stuff. And then it's other librarians who are actually putting it into the hands of kids and booksellers and all those things. I mean, it's just this massive kind of collaborative effort. And the end result is that this kid has a story that they love. I heard this uh, author who I have a great deal of respect for, Mo Willems. Uh, you said you don't have kids. If you had kids, you would know who Mo Willems was. But he... Um, I saw him speak at the same conference where I gave that little punk uh, anecdote. I went to that conference like six years ago before I had an agent or a book deal or anything. Um, and I was in the audience and he spoke at it. And I remember he said like, some, I, I can't, I couldn't say verbatim, but he said something to the effect of like, if you, if your dream is to get published, that's a pretty crappy dream. Like your, your dream, all right, you can get published. So what? You know, your dream should be to write a book that changes a kid's life, like, for the better, you know. And that was super meaningful to me then, and, you know, still something I try to hang on to now that, um, you know, when you're feeling tired or lazy or whatever, you realize, like, like this is this is going to be somebody's book. This might be the only book that they get for their mm -hmm. birthday. you got to make it a good one, yeah. you know. Um, and that book lives long beyond you. Yeah, I uh, when I was in Houston for that same thing, I um, I went to a used bookstore. I went to Half Price Books, uh, searching for records and stuff, and I found um, a copy of my first book, The Watermelon Seed, on their used bookshelf for four ninety nine. And it the jacket wasn't there anymore, so it's just the case cover, and yeah. the, the case cover is completely different. Most of my books, I do a different jacket and case cover. And it was all sun faded and looked like it had been chewed up and stuff. And do, you, I, do you sign it in the corner? I did. I didn't. I didn't. I maybe I should have, but they probably would have been like, "Who are you?" <laughs> you know, you can't resist the temptation to be like, "Hey, you know, I wrote this book. <laughs> I wrote this book." And so I usually do introduce myself in a new bookstore where I think like, but you know, when there's one like sun faded, uh, moth eaten copy of it on the shelf, you know, and I I took a photo of it and I put it on like Instagram and Twitter and stuff, just like a little sad emoji and. Um, so many people commented like that book was well loved like somebody read that and you know they um, they got their money's worth or yeah. stuff and it's, you know it is a nice way to think about it yeah, and it's eventually making its way into somebody else's brain you know it's not going to probably be there forever so it, it kind of moves on in, in life yeah yeah it's, a, it's, it's interesting because it's you think of as a creator you think of making books as like uh, an act like I made that's when I made that book, or that's when I was, that, oh, that year, that season was when I was working on this. But as a, like, a consumer of books, they're just books that live on your shelf, and they all, all exist in the same 
playing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's just interesting to see it from that side. Well, I guess uh, that probably uh, is uh, good enough for today. But it was it was really great talking to you. And, uh, cool, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm a big, uh, fan of the show, and <laughs> I learned a lot about Philly punk stuff that I had no idea. And again, my credentials in the punk scene are pretty light, but uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you very much.